0: Thank you, worship team. Don't they do a great job, y'all? Yes. Try that again. Don't they do a great job? Yeah. Yeah, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our study going verse by verse through that. Today we're going to step back from where we finished last week and begin afresh in verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 verse 16 through 20. This is God's word given to us that we should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 4, beginning in 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Wish I could be present with you now and change my tone from I'm very perplexed about you. Please pray with me. Our God, we, we come here this morning to sing praises to you, to pray, lay ourselves before you for examination. Lord, we come here that you would remind us of the gospel, that you would remind us or teach us or lead us to remember and believe the life of Christ secures all our blessings. The death of Christ atones for all our curses. And the resurrection of your son Jesus, he, He is the vindicating hope that the gospel is true. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us eyes so we can see these things, that you have given us ears that we could discern your voice. And Lord, we give you thanks that you give us a new heart, one that seeks after you to be molded by you, to please you, to enjoy you, to make much of you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would once again condescend to take your word and feed your people with it, with bread that never, ever fails to satisfy. Prepare us, Lord. Bless us, Lord. Lead and guide us, guard us, protect us. And sanctify us, we ask. In Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. Who's the hero? Who's the hero? Jesus. Amen. One of the things I love to think about stories. I marvel at men and women who can create whole universes, develop new and intricate languages, lay out maps of this world that they are creating. I am in awe easily when presented with such talent and diligence, such raw and beautiful imagination. I can also be in terror when I see portrayals of evil that hit close to home about the world that God has made, about the people that God has imagined, and the, and the work of his active will throughout the generations, I can marvel so easily Not only in stories, not only in worlds and settings and characters, I can marvel in plot lines. How do you think of that? When did she come up with that idea? Probably more than either of those two, I marvel in storytellers. I marvel at those who can communicate with words... Ideas that are borrowed and to do so winsomely, incredibly, sometimes overly graphically. But we live in a graphic world. Storytelling can mesmerize me, but the center of all of my fascinations comes down upon the question who's the hero? Who's the hero in this moment? Who's the hero in this story? be them large-footed, hairy-as-they-were hobbits, or wizards who fight against evil, heroes and superheroes and super-superheroes, it's easy for me to marvel. It's also hard at times to recognize who heroes are in unexpected places, in unexpected moments. Sometimes those are the best gotchas in a movie. You find out that you were thought you were following the hero and the whole time he was the villain. Or you thought you knew who the villain was and it gets traded off on you. Who's the hero? It is easy at times when we are reading the Bible to subtly... Or, sophisticatedly, fall prey to the idea that the people depicted are the heroes, that the warrior who stands against evil is the hero, that the apostle who takes the mission to the ends of the earth, despite famine and shipwreck and floating adrift and beaten, starved, tortured, thrown naked into dungeons to rot. It is easy for us to see these men and women and children as heroes. And it is not that they are not being heroic. Let's be very clear. There is heroism there. But the hero of the Bible is God. The hero of our story of redemption is God. So as we come to this moment in Galatians 4, Paul is pressing in on that truth and squeezing it for life, for cover, for protection. For his reader, listen to these words and ask yourself the question, who is the hero that Paul is heralding? Easy answer, Christ. Ask yourself what Paul's largest objection is to the teaching of the false teachers... He's standing against. He's contradicting. Who is the hero in the story of legalism? Who is the hero in the story of pagan religion? Is it not the dutiful one? Is it not the doer or the restrainer that determines the blessing? Listen to this moment as Paul has been guiding the Galatian churches and hear him say in very nuanced and sophisticated terms, I am not your hero. Nor should they be. But they want to be your hero. They want to use flattery as a succubus to put you to sleep so you no longer think for yourself. And then they are the conduit of your religion. They're the conduit of your dependence to have the favor of God. In fact, they want to tie, Paul uses the word often enslave the Gentiles to Jewish rituals for their own religious assurance. contrast here is so pregnant Paul is assured of his standing before God therefore he suffers in ministry that they too would have Christ formed in them and know the fullness of the favor of God given up front the contrast is with those who, in fear of their own assurance, remember a works based faith, all works based faith is a chasing after a favor that eludes you. And that's what pagan idolatry and Jewish. Legalism having in unity. And that's what Paul's been attacking. That's what Paul's been trying to drive towards. So listen to his argument in his own words. Verse 16: "Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. that you may make much. Of them, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Can you see the contrast he's drawing between the false teachers in who they are and in what they want and in how they get what they want? So there's a difference between the purpose and the methodology for the false teachers than Paul has. Paul uses a different method and he has a different goal in mind. False teachers, false teachers can be spotted sometimes more easily than you've ever imagined because they want your praise. And they want it to rest and fall upon them. They are unlike all the others. They are the truth teller. They are, look y'all, I am not the truth teller. I seek to tell truth, and you should judge me not by my sincerity, my eloquence, my rhetorical skill. You should judge what I say against one objective truth. What does the Bible say? Is what he is saying here in its richness, in its fullness, in a robust sense. We said together last week, and I told the story of how I came across the significance of Proverbs 27.6. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Flattery, not the same as a compliment. I love to compliment. I look for ways to compliment. But there are times where That compliment is unto something beyond itself. That's flattery. And they can be easily mistaken one for the other. So why is it that the wounds of a friend can be trusted? Because friends tell each other the truth. We don't participate in each other's fantasies or neglect. The significant sorrows caused by a lack of truth. It's done in love and compassion. It's not done as a superior to an inferior. It is done between faithful friends, intimate friends. So when Paul says here in verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, he remembers a time when they would never have been perceived as enemies. They would never have been understood as being victims of Paul's truth-telling. They were happy. They overflowed in joy and blessedness at Paul's willingness to come and tell them about the true God. Who's made himself known. But now, now Paul sees a change in them. Has Paul changed? Has the gospel changed? Is the same message that brought hope to them still hope filled? Have they emptied it of its hope? Only in their neglect or rejection of it, it is itself hope-filled because it's eternal. Listen to Tim Keller. This is a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's really helpful. Tim Keller says, A gospel-energized ministry does not need to have fans who are emotionally dependent on the leaders. A gospel-energized ministry seeks to please God assured of salvation through faith. These false teachers, on the other hand, are ministering not because they are sure of their salvation, but in order to be sure of and win their salvation. Just as they are calling the Gentiles to earn their salvation through works, so are they earning their salvation through works. And then he's got this killer quip it is salvation by ministry. Ooh, salvation by ministry. Now that's modern day Christian colloquial term, right? That's our language. But we're using, and what Keller is saying, is that that is the central function of all pagan idolatries. All systems of self-reliant salvation. All systems where you find your justification at the end of your life life of works and duty. All of them are attempts at salvation by ministry. There's a modern form of this in our culture. Salvation by good deeds is the the idea, but it's not the language. The language is altruism. Altruism is a good in its own. And if you can stack enough of it together, then the cosmos, the universe, some God if there is one, would be pleased with you. That's the line. That's the thinking. But in the same way that there's a broken version of this and view of this, in the first century church, that Paul's attacking, there are throughout history versions of this. I would argue it is the central version of the economy of evil to get you distracted with doing small good deeds as a satiation, in other words, to satisfy your abundant evils. And our culture does not really want truth tellers right now. Sometimes, half truths at least. So when he says here at the beginning of verse 17, these false teachers make much of you but they do it for no good purpose. False teachers are, we could say, zealous to win you over, but they want to win you over not for your good, but for their assurance, their sense of purpose and power. This is the same line of thinking that Jesus attacks basically at the, conclude, at the start of his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in Matthew 7, you will see Jesus run headlong into this idea in the church, in the people of God. When Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's in the context of what do you mean? I did all these things for you. I casted out demons. I did spiritual work. I did altruistic work. And I even gave you credit in the heading. I did it in your name. And Jesus is saying simply, not really, not really. You would have to know me to use my name appropriately. You would have to know me if you want to claim deflected glory. That's a term I want you to consider. Where is it in your life where you falsely deflect glory? Where is it in your life where you truly deflect glory? You are such a wonderful, insert the rest of the line, and your response is uncomfortable. You know this moment. I know this moment. I should get a PhD in this. I preach a good sermon in my own eyes and I wait for somebody to come forward and validate God's Holy Spirit speaking to them. Hopefully, should be. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes I just want you to validate me. And then even in the moment of that validation, I'm caught. Because part of me wants to keep that glory for me And part of me, because of God's grace, is smart enough and learned enough that it really belongs to him. And it's not to say that we deflect all compliments. Hear me clearly. We do not deflect all compliments. We ask of where they come. Did I do good? Yes, sometimes I did real good not as the source of my salvation, but out of my devotion to the Lord, out of my devotion to my wife, out of love and sacrifice for my kids, and that's real good. And I can receive that. I did good. But if the compliment is you are good, as opposed to you did good, then I have to wrestle. Dare I say... Please don't become my enemy because I tell you the truth. We must wrestle. Are we good in a way that that good just ends? Or is there a source of our goodness? Is there a source of our joy in sacrifice? False teachers here in verse 17 are zealous. Is zealousness bad? Is zeal bad? No. Zeal is what philosophers call dual use. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But it is itself not a value. It's only in the how you use it does it become valuable. So when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, and we want to say, but, 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 and rely upon or point to places we've went, things we've done, even when they seem spiritual. Why should I let you into heaven? I raised my hand and said 10 words. You're going to point at what you did to that question? I walked to the aisle when the guy asked me to. Good. Does the guy get the credit? Not if it's true. If it's phony, he gets all the credit and keeps it. What do you rely on? Your wisdom? Your resume? Your education? Your money? When we see Paul move... From the dual use of zeal, he then directly connects it to, they want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. In other words, they want you to be invested, not in who you are, but in who they are and what they provide to you. That's the Roman Catholic Church for like a thousand years. For like a thousand years. You couldn't participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Clergy did it for you. You weren't holy enough. You weren't far enough along on your journey. You weren't set apart enough. In fact, you didn't even know the language of the Bible. So you have to depend on me for the Bible. Yeah, we give out Bibles like we would give out water, yes? Do you have a Bible? And if you don't, please see us. We will give you a Bible. No charge, our delight. And then use that Bible to measure against what others say. But the Roman Catholic Church built in dogma the very thing paul is attacking here in the book of galatians depend on christ not depend on the church not depend on the clergy not depend on any one any thing but christ That's how he's tying this together. They want to shut you out. They want you to be considered an outsider, not an insider. They want you to be a them, and then you depend on them to become us. That way, Paul's saying, here's motive, you may make much of them. You may praise them. You may satisfy their Religious fears of not enough. This is one of those moments where, especially if you're like college age and you're moving to a college town and you start visiting churches, you're not sure about denominations, kind of want to go and worship and be with God, but you're not really sure where to go or who to go with and you go to a place and they have some of the most fervent worship you've ever seen. People are crying and falling out or people are entranced. And it's the nicest place, the friendliest place, the most immediately sacrificing place ever. And you go there for a while and then at some point you find out that none of them have assurance of salvation. Well, yeah, I'd be a little more fervent too perhaps. I wouldn't give myself a day off. If I thought my salvation depended on convincing other people to be here because we're the best and we have it and they don't. In fact, <laughs> if you hang out in the city of Williamsburg, our dear neighbor, for like a 15-year per- period, every three years, the Holy Spirit moved to a different church. And so the people literally like a church of a 1,000, a church of 1,500 became a church of hundred. Because everybody was chasing after a Holy Spirit that they thought was no longer resident in the place that they were. And it is a fruit of fear, flattery, and I wish I came up with an F for this, but I don't. We're going to go with E, ear tickling. Just find out what the people want to hear. And keep saying it. And they will keep coming. And you can call it ministry. You can call it church work. You can call it salvation. They are telling you what they think you need to hear. For their good. For their pride. For their ego. In other words, we have a word for this. It's called pandering. They are pandering to you in order to gain your loyalty. And your loyalty temporarily satiates their ego and assurance. But it's only temporary. When he says next in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of. This is true. Should we celebrate birthdays? Why? Life should be celebrated. Is life hard? The older you get, you become more and more and more sure of the truth that life is hard. Right? I mean, I remember being 20 and watching speeches in movies thinking, why is he talking about that? Let's talk about these other things. That's what interests me. And the older I get, the more those monologues make way more sense. Sylvester Stallone saying, nothing hits harder than life. I mean, I, okay. I'm 48 and I'm like, word. <laughs> <Not> a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a ghost alone. Rocky always got something to teach you. Why do your teachers teach you? What do they teach you? What do they want you to be when they are done teaching you? These are important questions. As we go through life. It's not just in the religious sector. It's certainly in the religious sector, but it's not only there. It is good to be celebrated for things that are good. It is good to be joyful. One of the things I love about our church, this church here, right here by grace, is that I feel like we have and are maturing in the area of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Have you ever felt guilty at small group? Cause you really want to share like a praise? You're like like okay, what's your life like? And you're like, I gotta find something miserable. It's the contest of misery. You know, and then the only one who gets to suffer at the end of that Bible study is the one with the most suffering. And everybody else goes, well, I don't have it that bad. Or is that just the groups I lead? Groups I've been in? Brent taught me years ago. Thank you. More than one person is allowed to be suffering at the same time. And also, while others may suffer, you must celebrate. You must, it's not an option. Do we not ask God to teach, lead, guide, guard, and bring about good for us all the time? Then why would we deny each other the celebratory joy? of someone else's good, and I hate this word, fortune. So let's call it providence. Blessing. Part of what Paul's attacking at the center, the very heart of this gospel, is the idea that people have the ultimate goodness, that the ultimate celebration rests upon them. And it doesn't. God is the hero. You want to study the Bible? Well, God is the hero. Don't be Daniel in your circumstance. And don't find a jawbone to beat somebody with. Worship the God they worship. Be led. Be transformed. Be truthful and truth-filled. Be spirit-full and filled. And lead Love, sacrifice, bless. When he says here, it's always good to be made much of, there is a qualifier. It's for a good purpose. Why do we put a sombrero on your head when your birthday lines up on a Sunday? Yeah, because we really love you. And some of you are like, where's my sombrero? I love watching a 15-year-old kid come up and go, All right, now I get some barrow treatment, right? I'm like, yes, you waited six years for this. Or sometimes eight years for this and figure that math out later. But that good purpose is not only in the presence of the minister who is ministering to you. This is easily lost, but it's so helpful to see. Do you have to change your language because a holy person has come near you? Do your friends feel obligated to change their language, change their behavior because you are with them? Some of that could be great. Some of that is like, no, 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 like, yeah, hey, that's a good reminder, Mark's nearby, like, I know that we want to say stuff or do stuff, but like, man, it tears Mark's heart apart when you use his Lord's name as a punchline. It just hurts him, so I don't want to hurt him. But sometimes, we are not telling the truth in our willingness to have other people change all of their behaviors to suit our preferred comforts. This is a great moment at the start of a Marvel movie. All the superheroes are flying into action. We barely know what they're doing or why. And as they're surging in, some of them are flying in and some of them are riding a motorcycle in and some of them are running real fast. And in this moment, you see this convergence. They all have earpieces in, like all special operators should. And so they're talking to one another and they're on their way in and somebody uses a cuss word and before anybody could take a breath, my favorite superhero of all time, Captain America, you should have no other favorite superhero. Batman is wrong, Captain America is right. And before he can skip a beat, he goes, language. And if you know the scene, it's hilarious because everybody else is like, aw. And you can see their reaction is friendship. They know Cap's not going to swear and that it can bother him when somebody swears. And this is not a sermon about swearing. But there are times where who we are should bring about transformation in the lives of the people around us. And there are other times where we indulge their wrong view and reinforce it that we are good and they are bad and that church is a place for good people. Is church a place for good people? You guys hate that question, right? (laughs) Because like in your bones, you're like, yes! Oh, wait, but but not in this. But they're... (laughs) You look like John Travolta having an argument in your own head. Staying alive, staying. (laughs) This moment will pass. Talk about it at lunch. What is the relationship people and goodness have with church? Let's batter it, banter about it, joke about it, lean into it. There are times when I'm evangelizing. And I'm talking with somebody who does not know God, does not love God, is no longer kind of in this saturated Christian culture, and I know that the biggest problem in their life is not the language they use, but they think that's my biggest objection with their way of life. So I had to develop a line. Right, like you have to have a phrase for this moment when you hit it over and over and over and over again. How do I want to confront it? Well, I chose to say this. You be you, I'll be me, and we'll be fine. I'll be me, you be you, we'll be fine. So I want you not to pretend with me. And I want the freedom to not pretend with you. Not gonna just itch your ears. I'm not gonna sing you sweet lullabies until you trust me and then bring the hammer of salvation upon thee. That's why Thor's not my favorite, sorry. Just, I'm gonna be me. You are free to be you. We'll be okay. We're gonna build this relationship on a bedrock of truthfulness. And then I'm going to trust that the Lord will use my willingness to be there, to enter into the mess, to speak true and hard things for his glory, for the benefit of this sinner who needs the hope of salvation and the eternal relationship with God he was born for. That's why you can see Paul's pastoral heart interject into this moment because what is happening in their relationship is the biggest thing that's wrong in their life it's not a cuss word it's a lifestyle of rejecting and denouncing the hope of the gospel they don't want Christ to get all the glory anymore or they're at least toying with that idea like trying to hold a nuclear weapon in your hand better it's like trying to hold hot uranium in your hand that just melted away it always corrupts it always corrodes it always devastates so Paul's pastoral heart beneath his pain in this moment he, he just jumps my little children Is that a statement a superior makes towards an inferior? Only by general category, not by tender affection. My little children. And then he uses one of the most important, beautiful, breathtaking images in the whole Bible. See, mothers suffer in childbirth. And miraculously, they forget lots of it. Seriously. Like, there is like some protein release chemical we're gonna find out someday that's like an amnesia thing. Because the second they see the child apart from their womb, their joy overflows and overshadows all of the suffering that the guys in the room remember. (laughs) What happened to the waiting room? Just kidding mostly. (laughs) Mothers suffer, and they don't just suffer in birthing the child. That's the first stage of the life of a mother suffering. But see, Paul wants the people he ministers to to become like Christ, dependent on Christ, not dependent on Paul, not dependent on a false teacher with a big ego and a small security. Paul sees himself, he sees the gospel ministry as childbirth, long and hard and worth every minute until Christ is formed. The false teachers want followers who glorify them. Paul wants gospel partners who glorify Christ, depend on Christ. See, Paul knows and believes that his followers add nothing to the favor God has upon him. God has given him everything up front. And then we see Paul's parental disappointment. Verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now. Change my tone. I'm just perplexed. I'm confused, frustrated about you. Paul's not angry anymore. He's angry over the wrong gospel. But he's hurt that that wrong gospel is being welcomed by people he knows, that he loves, who loved him so much. Consider the hyperbole of verse 15 again. Paul wishes he was there in person so that he could once again hold out the truth. Verse 16 of the gospel. And Paul doesn't need to receive their praise. He wants that praise given to Christ. That's why he suffers for it. And this is in keeping with what he said at the beginning in Galatians 1.10. Paul says, for am I now... Seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You must choose. Who is the hero? And how do you take part in his mission? Who is the hero? And what method does he use to slay evil, bring about flourishing to the praise of God? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask this week that you would remind us that you are the hero, not just of the Bible, but of history. God, would you remind us once again of the central privilege of suffering for your sake and in your name. Lord, forgive us for the desire and the times when we have shirked that suffering invitation. Thank you that you forgive us for our denials, for our stepping back instead of stepping forward. God, we give you thanks that you have such an abundant forgiveness and overwhelming mercy upon us. You do not look at us and see our biggest or even any failure. We are not the sum of the worst thing we've ever done. We are the sum of the most grotesque thing you ever suffered. To remove that from us. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your blood shed to cover and to transform our sin. (laughs) And to take it from us. Lord we give you thanks that in your righteous life. You have secured all of the blessings. And then by the work of your spirit you have given them to us. Now. That we might enjoy you and them forever. Would you receive our praise for those very things. We ask in Jesus name. And all God's people agree.